0: Well, we have almost done it, haven't we? Well, we'll draw it out a little bit longer. Just can't leave Hebrews too quickly. It's been a marvelous time as we've studied together this great book of the scriptures. And if you've been with us over the last number of weeks, especially the last six weeks, you have studied with us 10 different mandates, commands that the Lord has given us, mandates that the Lord uses by his grace to preserve us, to accomplish our perseverance. We've been hearing of our responsibility to love our congregation, care for Christians, serve the suffering, preserve marriage, avoid materialism, study leaders in our past, reject incomplete teaching, offer acceptable worship, obey and pray for those who are currently leading us one mandate after another. And when I study those mandates and I study those commands of scripture, uh, many of them are, are enlightening to my soul, they encourage my heart, and then the more that I think about them and the more I think about what the Lord requires and how small I am in my ability to accomplish them, these commands, especially if they're connected to how I persevere in the faith, can be almost debilitating. If left to myself, I don't know how I'm going to do that. I don't know how I'm going to do any of these. And if I can't do these, and these are the commands that actually accomplish perseverance, how am I going to make it? Perhaps that's come across your heart and Maybe that's come across your mind as we've been studying these, and indeed there are some who would suggest there, there is no obedience that's ever needed in regard to persevering. God just guarantees it. It's a fact, and, and you don't do anything, but that would be too simplistic a view of Scripture. It's really not paying attention to the specifics of Scripture, and then what do we do with all 10 of those commands that were just given in the context of our own perseverance, Maybe you've thought about that. I I just don't do these things well enough to preserve my faith or anybody else's faith. I can't be consistent enough in these things. These mandates are massive in scope. They're very deep in their difficulty. But what we have to keep in mind throughout all of this, especially when we think about our responsibility involved in persevering in the faith is that God has promised. God has promised to preserve us. His grace will enliven our actions. His promises overcome the limitations to our obedience so that in what we are doing with one another and in ourselves, he is actually the one accomplishing what he promised to do in keeping us in Christ. We all know the the reality of that when we think about it in some practical ways. It takes somebody to come into this room. I don't know if you've ever been in this room at night nighttime. I know students have because they play games in here during some student events. It is dark in here. Somebody's got to go push that button to turn these lights on. And when someone pushes the button to turn those lights on, no one ever thinks, wow, what power is in that finger? No one ever thinks that. That is one powerful person that they can light this whole room up by pushing that button. No one ever thinks that the power is in the person who pushed the button. It's somewhere else. It took an action, but the power resides somewhere else. Which is why the writer of the book of Hebrews concludes the previous 10 mandates with a very strategic plea to God for him to effectively work through our obedience to accomplish our perseverance. Did you notice as Brett read these verses, they are a prayer. They are a plea to God. It is a prayer for God to do his work in our works. That's what this is. It's a prayer for God to effectively work in our work. So how is it that we effectively pray for God to accomplish our perseverance through our obedience? How do we do that? Well, I want to suggest that these two verses yield to us two different truths that we have to trust when we pray for perseverance. Two different truths that we trust in when we pray for perseverance so that we keep the faith and we not quit the faith. We're pleading with God, but we plead with him confident in two significant truths. We trust in him with these truths. What are they? First of all, we find in verse 20. Here's the first truth we trust in when we pray. God's work is is based on what he has done in Jesus. Whatever work God does in our works, he does that work based on what he has already accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ. That's where verse 20 goes. And I I want you to see this, and I want you to see how this prayer is actually connected to all of the commands that we've been studying for the last few weeks. The very first word in the sentence, if you look carefully at it in verse 20, in the New American Standard Version, it reads, now. Do you see that? You say, well, (laughs) these are little words we we just kind of pass through these. Well, don't don't do it too quickly. That little particle there, that little word, now, is the word day in Greek, D-E, day. It is often translated as and, Or, as it is here in the New American Standard, it could be translated as now. But most often, that little word is translated as but. It's not a strong contrast. There's another term in the Greek language if you want to emphasize something that's a very strong contrast. He's not making a major contrast. Contrast is not even the real emphasis. But there is a little taste of contrast here. After giving us all of these commands you do begin to feel a little bit of the weight. And he's not moving on from those commands here. He's actually connecting something to them and it is a prayer. So do these things, do all of these 10 commands, but but the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, may he equip you. So do these commands, but rely on the work that God has done in Jesus Christ as you do them. As you live out your life for Christ, you trust in God to accomplish that work in you when we first introduced all those commands back in verse one, I referred to them as the mandates of perseverance. And I also alluded to verses 20 to 25 and called them the dependence of perseverance. That's what these are. This is a dependence upon God for perseverance, a prayer of dependence on God's grace to preserve us through Jesus. So while it is that we've waded through the deep waters of responsibility in regard to our perseverance, we must not ever think that we can accomplish any of these activities in our own ability. All obedience must be the divine work of God through our obedience. Obey, but may God equip you to do his will as he does his pleasure in and through your doing of his will. It's what these verses are saying. And he does do something in our obedience. And everything that he does is done through what he has already done in Jesus. How fascinating that the writer dwells on that in verse 20. Before he ever makes mention of the request, he dwells on what God has done in Christ. What is it that God has done in Jesus so that his work will be effective in our works? What has he done? Well, there are two actions that you see here. First, he has established peace. He has established peace. You see it in the title described of God here. And the God of peace. The God of peace. This is the God who is the source of peace or the God who is the giver of peace. Now this is not the first time you would see this kind of title ascribed to God. He is oftentimes referred to in the New Testament as the God of peace. Romans 15, now the God of peace be with you. Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Philippians 4, 9, Paul says, the things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. First Thessalonians five twenty three now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. The God has been called the God of peace, the author of peace, the source of peace a number of times in the New Testament. Other places refer to him in his being the source of peace, like 1 Corinthians 14, 33, God is not a God of confusion but of peace. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Live in peace and the God of love and peace will be with you. 2 Thessalonians 3, 16, May the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. Peace is often connected to God. When the angels descended, Luke chapter 2, and they announced the birth of Christ, glory to God in the highest, and what? Peace. Peace among men. Now oftentimes when we read those in the scripture, God is referred to as the God of peace in reference to some kind of tranquility of circumstance. That our circumstances will know peace that comes from God. That the things that are raging around us might quieten down a bit. But here in this text, the God of peace is not really referring here to our circumstances being more tranquil. It's referring to our relationship with God being a relationship of peace. And we know that because everything that he says here about the God of peace and how he describes the God of peace is in reference to our salvation. What was accomplished through Christ between us and God We don't think about that too often or perhaps we don't think of it often enough. The problem that you and I have with God is that we are his enemies apart from Christ. That's our main problem. He is against us because of our sin. We have been against him in our sin. We remember a passage like Romans 5 Verse eight, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet, what? Sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us when we were still in our sins. Or to go on to verse 10 in Romans eight or Romans five, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. There was peace between us and God established through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, although you were formerly alienated, listen to this language, alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. What has God done through Christ? He has established peace between himself and you through his son. This is what led one commentator to define this phrase, the God of peace, as the God of saving bliss. We were God's enemies. And yet, think of this. We were the enemies of the creator. And he accomplished everything that would bring peace between the rebellious creation and their creator. Everything. That's a little like George Washington being executed for Benedict Arnold's treason. Really? That's mind-boggling. What's most needed by the troubled soul that's ready to leave Christ, that's ready to walk away and not pursue the Lord anymore, What is needed by that troubled soul is that they need to be reminded that they have a relationship of peace with their creator. Not established by their actions, not sustained by their ability, but completely accomplished by God in the person of Christ. That's what God has done to earn that title, the God of peace. Now, what is it that made him the God of peace? Well, we see that in the second activity that God has done in Jesus to make our efforts effective in perseverance, we see it. He has raised Jesus. He's the God of peace because he has raised Jesus. You see it in verse 20? Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead. Everything else in the verse is tied to that phrase. Who brought up from the dead. He raised Jesus. Jesus. How significant this is. If Jesus remains dead, sin is still alive. And if sin is still alive, we are still enemies with God. But he conquered sin, therefore there's peace with God. God made peace by conquering the ultimate consequence of sin, which is death. Death is what Christ embraced on our behalf. And God gained the title God of peace because it was the father who raised the son to life after his crucifixion. He brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. I just want to say, I took for granted that verse when I first approached it, but this is one of the most exquisite statements that you will find in the book because it essentially encapsulates the entirety of the book of Hebrews in these phrases. It's all about what he has already talked about. And this is typical for one of the biblical writers Either when he begins his letter, he prays a prayer that anticipates everything to come in the letter, or at the end of the letter, he prays in such a way that he summarizes everything that he's just said. And he's actually praying in such a way that he's relying on everything that he has taught us from chapter one up to this point. It's a really loaded statement. I want you to notice he first indicates to us that God the father is the one who brought up Jesus from the dead. The father raised the son. We remember a statement like Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10 that it was the Lord himself who was pleased to crush the son. You remember statements like that? The Lord was pleased to crush his own son and if he was pleased to crush him it was also his pleasure to raise him from the dead. And that is the universal testimony of the New Testament. Eight times in the book of Acts, you will find statements of God the Father raising the Son from the dead. The Apostle Paul mentions it seven times explicitly that God the Father is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. Even the Apostle Peter once in his letter in 1 Peter 1.21 mentions that God the Father raised the Son from the dead. And when the father raised his son, death's authority ended. The sting of death is not final. Our life is tied to the resurrected life of Jesus Christ. Now as I was studying, it struck me, how many times have we actually read about the resurrection in the book of Hebrews? Some scholars would even say this is the first time it's ever mentioned. I started to go back through the book and and just remind myself of some of the truths that were stated about Christ. And while there might not be any explicit reference to the resurrection in the book of Hebrews up until this point, the resurrection of Jesus is at least implied or relied upon throughout this book. In chapter 5, verse 7, Jesus offered up both prayers and supplications to the one who was able to save him from death. That implies resurrection. In chapter 6, verse 20, and chapter 7, verse 8, he possesses an eternal priesthood. How could he have an eternal priesthood if he was dead? In chapter 7, verse 16, Jesus has the power of what is called an indestructible life. A life that cannot be touched by death. In chapter 7, verse 23, Jesus, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. He's raised to an eternal life. So we have God the Father raising the Son to a life of eternity. And the entire priesthood of Jesus that we rely on day in and day out for any effectiveness in spiritual life whatsoever is all tied to the resurrection. Whatever power it was that God used to raise Jesus from the dead, it is that very power that he invests in us to accomplish his ultimate will. Think about that. What kind of power did it take to raise Jesus from the dead? You've never seen anything like that. No one in this room has watched resurrection from the dead. You hear little stories about resuscitations, but not resurrection. Not someone who was in the grave three days. What kind of power is that? The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 1 verse 19, What is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him. At his right hand in the heavenly places. The full power of God put on display in raising Jesus from the dead is the very power he uses in you to keep you in Christ. That is incredible power. There isn't any greater. But it is interesting here, he doesn't just focus on the resurrection and he doesn't just say he raised Jesus from the dead. Why does he use this language that he does that you find here in verse 20? Look at it. He raised who from the dead? The great shepherd of the sheep. Why? Why use that kind of language? Well, there are a couple of good reasons why I think he could be using this kind of shepherd language. God was referred to as the shepherd of his people in the Old Testament. Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd. Shepherd, We know that one well. Psalm 80 verse 1 speaks of the shepherd of Israel. Isaiah 40 verse 11 speaks of God like a shepherd who tends his flock. God views himself as a shepherd. There's other reasons. This is a title that refers to the Messiah oftentimes in the Old Testament as well. And not just the title that refers to the Messiah, but a title that refers to the Messiah in connection with the new covenant, which is really significant when you read the book of Hebrews, isn't it? The great shepherd of the sheep is the shepherd who is connected to the new covenant, which could be a reference to somewhere like Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 23, Which says, then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them, and he will feed them himself and be their shepherd. Even further in Ezekiel 37, 24, my servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd. And they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them because they're being led by the great shepherd, We know Jesus referred to himself as the shepherd, the good shepherd in John 10. Peter refers to Jesus as the chief shepherd in 1 Peter 5, 4. He is the shepherd and guardian of your souls in chapter 2, verse 25 of 1 Peter. All of those are likely references to that Old Testament idea of God leading through the Messiah in the new covenant. If you're in Christ, you are being led by God, the shepherd, So that's likely a major reason why he would use that title. But I think there's another reason. One that we would miss quickly if we we weren't paying close attention to the whole of the book of Hebrews. This phrase here, the great shepherd or the shepherd of the sheep. That phrase in Greek is found in the Old Testament exactly this way in one particular passage. And it's in Isaiah chapter 63 verse 11. Many refer to this as what the writer of Hebrews is having in mind when he mentions that Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. Isaiah 63, 11. That same phrase you'll find in the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And if you look at that verse, it it reads this way. Now listen to it carefully. This is the New American Standard. It says, Then his people remembered the days of old, and listen carefully, of Moses. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea? The shepherd of the sheep. Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them? Refers to Moses. By the same phrase, the shepherd of the sheep. The shepherd of the flock. It doesn't refer to the Messiah as the shepherd of the flock. It refers to Moses. Moses as the shepherd of the flock. You say, why would the writer of Hebrews connect Moses to Jesus here? Well, it's interesting in Isaiah sixty three eleven, it does not refer to Moses as the great shepherd as it does here in Hebrews. It just refers to Moses as the shepherd. Now, do you remember, you have to really go back a ways. When we studied chapter 4, of Hebrews, where it told us to consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Consider the apostle, that was a a statement of who represents God most. Who's the greatest representative of God? The greatest apostle. That's what an apostle is, a representative of God. And he went on in chapter 4, to describe Moses who up to that point, up to the point of Jesus was likely the person you could point to as the greatest representative of God ever. No one spoke with God the way Moses spoke with God. He was the great revealer of the truth of God in the Mosaic covenant. He was the greatest individual to lead God's people out of the sea, lead them through the wilderness and into the promised land. He was the great shepherd of the sheep until... The greatest shepherd came. What he's doing here, he's reminding you of what we've already learned, of why do you look to Jesus? Because he's exalted above every other major figure in all of redemptive history, including the greatest of them, Moses himself. This is not the shepherd of the sheep. This is not the one who leads them out through the waters of the Red Sea. No, this is the great shepherd of the flock. Greater than Moses. Not a second Moses. Greater than Moses. Far beyond him. It's a summary of what we've already looked at thus far. He's the one higher than Moses. The ultimate Davidic shepherd of all of God's people through the new covenant. Meaning the new covenant, not the covenant of Moses. We've gone beyond that. The covenant of Moses pointed us to this new covenant and this great shepherd, and he has now arrived, which is precisely where the writer turns next. Do you see it in verse 20? He's the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant. The blood of the eternal covenant. Now, likely, this is in reference to why God brought up Jesus from the dead. On what basis did he bring up Jesus from the dead? It is because of the blood of the eternal covenant. The blood connected to the eternal covenant is what caused God to raise Jesus from the dead. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, you think back to the old covenant. The old covenant had sacrifices connected to blood, Do you ever remember any occasion in the Old Covenant when an animal was killed but was then raised from the dead? Do you ever remember anything like that? No? Those animals died, their blood was drained, and they stayed dead. They were temporary signs, weren't they? Temporary signs of one to come of one covenant that would never end. One covenant that would be the ultimate covenant that required a blood that would be equally eternal. Again, this is a contrast between the Old Testament sacrifices that were not eternal, that could never completely cleanse the conscience or the inner man, but it was faith in the one to come through whom those sacrifices represented. Faith in those sacrifices pointing to the ultimate one is what saved you, not the sacrifice itself. Which is reminding us of everything that we studied from chapter five on through chapter 10 about the high priestly work of Jesus Christ offering up eternal sacrifice of his own blood greater than the blood of bulls and goats was this blood Connected to this covenant, not the Mosaic covenant, not the old covenant, but the new covenant that never ends. Jesus doesn't come from the ironic priestly line, does he? He comes from the line of Melchizedek, which is an eternal priestly line. And we've looked at this throughout the book of Hebrews in chapter 7, verse 22. Jesus was the guarantee of a better covenant, better than the Mosaic covenant. In chapter 8, verse 6, Jesus obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. In chapter 9, verse 15, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Chapter 10, verse 29 refers to Jesus' death as the blood of the covenant. In chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Throughout this book, Jesus' death was connected to a different covenant than the covenant of Moses, the new covenant that never ends, that brings in a perpetual, complete relationship with God. The blood of the eternal covenant points to the high priestly work of Jesus as priest and sacrifice, the ultimate, great, eternal priest and sacrifice, which is exactly what chapters 4 through 10, particularly 5 through 10, were telling us. He's not just a high priest. We were told he is the highest of high priests. He is the greatest of all high priests. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest, the greatest of them. That is who Jesus our Lord is. Now, all of that, rehearsing essentially chapters 4 through 10 of the book. Back away from that for just a moment and think about all those details in relationship to you And you're not quitting the faith, you're keeping the faith. And how you pray in such a way that you trust in what God has done in Jesus so that you will not fail. Now again, if I think of myself and all these commands that I have to keep, if I think of myself and how small my efforts are in comparison to what is asked of me, When I think of myself and the frustrations that come at times when I see how limited I am in sustaining myself in my own faith, I can grow in great, great despair. In fact, I would suggest to you that most people who are in despair are in despair because they are fixated on themselves. Right? That is where anxiety comes from. That is where despair flows from, is being radically focused on what you cannot do. Which is why this writer, after giving all these commands, focuses our heart again on the God who established peace and raised up the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of an eternal covenant, rehearsing everything about Christ, telling us one more time, When you pray to him, look to Jesus, not yourself, not inward, look upward. Do not look around you, look at Christ. Look at what God has done. Pray as if God has done everything necessary for you to make it. That's what he's saying here. Rehearse again. Go dive deep into the details of the power of Christ and the accomplishments of Christ. That's how you obey so that you persevere. You look at Jesus. Who else are you going to look to? Who else are you going to tell the despairing soul to look to? Go reconsider yourself, take a retreat and reconsider yourself and how great you really are. Is that really what we need? Do we need to go see a counselor to tell us and sing to us that we're the greatest of all? Makes you feel better for a moment. Start telling yourself, yes, I can. Yes, I can. Only to get back out there and find out, no, you can't. Right? No, you can't. Big victories every now and then. Then you crash. Because you're looking at yourself. Or you're looking around at all the little things. If we just do this, if we just do that, if we just do that, no... Don't you remember? God has done everything. He has done everything so that you can live for Jesus. That's who Christ is. That's how you have confidence. That is the highest possible assurance of answered prayer imaginable, isn't it? Which then brings us to the second of the two truths we want to trust in. It's fascinating. He spends a whole verse just talking about the nature of God and what he's done in Christ before he ever brings up a request. I, I would suggest that's a good practice perhaps to begin. Before you ever ask a thing from God, dwell for a little while on what he's done for us in his son. Think of every request you might ever bring to him in light of what Jesus has accomplished. Which is where he goes next. It's a second truth to trust in as we pray for perseverance. Secondly, God accomplishes his will in our work. I have to first think about what he has done in Jesus and then I have to remind myself and trust in this promise. God accomplishes his will in our work. This is where prayer gets frustrating every now and then because a lot of times what we're pouring out to God and pleading to God in our despair, in our frustration, in our weakness. We're telling him, this is what, what I think I need, Lord. This is what I want. This is what I think I should do. This is the way I think it should go. Lord, this can't be the path. Friends, stop. He accomplishes his will in our work. His will. Based on what God has done in Jesus, he will accomplish his will in our work. How does he do that? Let's break this down into three different parts that show us how God accomplishes his will in our work. Three different parts. First, God prepares us to do his will. He prepares us. He prepares us to do his will in our work. Here's the prayer. Verse 21. May he equip you. It's actually the language of prayer. For those who study the Greek text, it's the optative mood, meaning this is an expression of desire or a wish. This is a prayer. May he equip you. May the God who established peace through the resurrection of Jesus as the new covenant shepherd with the blood of the never-ending new covenant equip you. That word equip is used in the Gospels to refer to the disciples actually mending their nets Preparing their nets so that the nets are effective to catch the fish. That's the idea. These nets are well prepared now. That's what the idea of equipping means. And he's equipped us in every good thing. Did you see that? In every good thing or by means of every good thing. The tools that he uses to equip us is every good thing which is a phrase we've actually seen in this book already in chapters 9 and 10. Chapter 9 verse 11, chapter 10 verse 1, it speaks of the good things that are to come, which refers to life that is eternal, salvation that is fully realized. Those are the good things to come. And he equips us in those good things, One commentator said, every good thing is a comprehensive description of all the good things brought by Christ's high priestly ministry. Thus, it includes cleansing from sin, a heart ready to obey, continual access into God's presence in time of need, and the promise of final entrance into the unshakable kingdom. Every good thing He uses to prepare us. Every spiritual fruit and reality that comes from the work of Jesus, God uses to equip us and to prepare us to do His will. To do His will. Think about the wealth that you have in Christ and what He has given you, what He has gained for you, so that you will do God's will. What do you lack? What resource is not available to you to do everything that God wants you to do? He has prepared you as sufficiently as the work of Jesus is sufficient. If there's anything lacking in Jesus, that's what's lacking in your ability to do his will. I don't know if I can go through this though, some might say. How can this be the will of God? Why must it be like this? Why should these circumstances be the way? Do I really have to endure life with this? Our Lord showed us, didn't he? When he prayed as intensely as a human being has ever prayed before. If it is possible, another way. But what did he say? your will God gives us if he gave his son everything necessary to endure what none of us could have imagined to endure if he gave his son and prepared him to do the will of God is he going to leave you hanging is he going to leave you out to dry are your circumstances not his will Are you not accomplishing what he desires where he has you in this moment? No, he's prepared you to do his will. In detail, what do you think his will refers to within the context of this chapter? Likely all these commands he's just given you. All of them. Yeah, we can love each other and preserve marriage and care for each other and avoid materialism. We can do all of these because those are his will. We don't have to wonder, how do I know what the will of God is? Well, he's told you. Here it is. This is what you should do. And what has he done? Through Jesus, he has equipped you and prepared you through every eternal reality to do what he's asked you to do. Just a note here, How do you think it is that God will equip us in reference to all that is good in salvation in Christ? How's he going to do that, equip us to do his will? Probably through circumstances that require us to live by faith, right? You remember what we call that? Have you forgotten Genesis yet? God governs all things to his glory. His providence brings us into circumstances and life situations in which we will be required to live in confidence in Jesus Christ. As if everything that he has done will be sufficient for us no matter what we are walking through. So, You can say, yes, Lord, I'm ready to do your will. And then you plummet into trial. And you think, well, that's not what I was thinking, Lord. It's not quite the path I had in mind, right? Because at heart, most of us are a little prosperity gospel. We think if we're in the will of God, everything is blessing. And we always define blessing as something that looks to me as good and fruitful and big and prosperous but how many trials have been blessings? How many trials have pulled out of us what we didn't think was really in us because God was accomplishing it? I don't know what that means for you right now. I, I'm sure just looking across, there's, there's more than 300 meanings to this as far as how it looks in life. It's just, I'm just scanning. I, I know so many of you and I know some of the challenges that you face and some of the issues that you're walking through. He's not left you to yourself. And every command that he has ever given you to live by faith in Jesus, in all of their specificity, he has also said, I've given you everything that you need to do it. So, God prepares us to do his will. But that's not all. I mean, you'd think that's enough. Oh no, but this commercial doesn't end. That's not all. (laughs) Secondly, God does what pleases him in our work. It is not merely that he equips you. He actually does what pleases him in our work. I want you to see that. May he equip you in every good thing to do his will as he is working in us. Do you see that? The word working is the word to do. This is actually a play on words here. May he equip you to do his will by doing in you. Who's doing what you are doing. He's not coercing you. He's not forcing you. But everything you do when you do his will is his doing, his making it effective to keep you in Christ. It's his doing. He's doing in us what is pleasing in his sight. Everything God calls us to do everything he desires us to do that would preserve our soul, when we act on it, he makes it effective spiritually. It's the same idea as what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter two, verse 12 and 13. So then my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. You remember this next phrase? work out your salvation you say oh but he doesn't mean my eternal salvation well which salvation do you think he means work out yourself well I thought salvation was not by works it's not you do not earn it by your efforts You do not gain approval from God because you've done enough to gain the approval no You are in Christ. So what do you do with your salvation? Work out your salvation. Obey. Follow the commands. Be diligent. Fight sin. Put it to death. Obey God. Work it out with fear and trembling, meaning not from arrogance, Why can I have such confidence that I can work out my salvation? Because verse 13 of Philippians 12. Because it is God who is at work in you. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's exactly the same as what we're seeing here in this prayer. Work out your salvation because God is working in your works. He is the one energizing them with spiritual effectiveness. This is how I have confidence that our obedience to his commands will preserve our souls. Not because I think I'm the one achieving all the work. I'm trusting him to make them effective. I'm trusting him that Jesus did enough and he applied it to me so that God will accomplish all of it to my good. But there's one other note here about how God accomplishes his will in our work. It's not for our renown. It's not for our glory. It is all for his. So think about this third part. God glorifies Jesus in our work. He glorifies Jesus in our work. He's working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. What he finds pleasurable through Jesus Christ To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory. God will equip you to do His will by working in you what pleases Him through Jesus, to the result that God receives all the glory. How selfish of God! He wants to take credit for everything. Yes. Everything. And do you see how good it is for you when he gets all of the glory? Do you see it? You persevere in the faith. You enter into eternal life. You receive life as God always intended it to be from the beginning of creation when he comes again when he gets all the glory. He has reminded us throughout the Bible he's not going to share our glory. You cannot take credit for anything. You can look at your good deeds and you can, you can look at your obedience and you can say, look at what I've done. But then you're looking wrongly, aren't you? Because who's done it? God made it effective. I don't think there's anybody, there's no one here in this room that's going to make it into eternity future and look back and say, I think I did a good job. I see how I got here. I don't know how you got here, but I see how I got here. I don't think there'll be anybody like that. It's a lot like parents who come to the end of parenting as far as the end of parenting goes in terms of them being in your house. I haven't met many parents who look back on kids who are following the Lord and loving Christ and they look back and say, yep, we did it all. We did it all. Most of them, tears begin to form and they say, that is God's grace. That is God's. Listen, that is what it will be when you make it into eternity. It is God's grace that brought me here. Yes, there was hard work. Yes, there was obedience. Yes, there was trial. Yes, there was suffering. Yes, there was being a part of the community and urging one another on and walking with each other through redundant sins. Yes. Yes, there was sorrow and there was death. Yes, there was three steps forward and five backwards. Yes, there was disease. Yes. There were problems and we made it because God was faithful and he did it in such a way that all of the glory belongs to him. You know, verse 20, we noted, was wrapping up chapters four through 10 by rehearsing for us that Jesus is greater than the former great greatest shepherd he's greater than that one Moses his blood is eternal unlike what the high priest of the old covenant verse 21 is actually wrapping up the first three chapters of the book because it is Jesus who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature he is the one who displays the glory of God the Father to us as the greatest revelation of God to us. You see how the writer is praying through what he has already written? He is praying using the content of the whole book in two sentences and saying, this is what I, I pray will make your works effective. Effective. That you will see the grandeur of Christ. You will see the glory of Jesus. You will rely on him because he is greater than anyone. You will look to him. So that you then begin to live for him. You look to him. Chapters 1 through 10. So that you will live for him. Chapters 11 through 13. So that you will not quit. But keep the faith. You live for him as you trust him and you trust him as you understand him and you are looking to him and appealing to him. I love how this writer begins to end this book. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, May he equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us, all of us, that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I want to pray for those in this room this morning who do not know Jesus in the fullness of what he has accomplished. And they would look at their life and they would see the evidence of their life as not pointing to them being disciples of Christ. That they look at how they have approached life and they do not see them tethered to Jesus, trusting him and relying on him. And I pray, Lord, that you would begin to show them just how good Jesus is and how sufficient he is and what he has accomplished so that they can be forgiven of sin and live life to your glory, which is their greatest good. Would you awaken their hearts this morning? Open their eyes to look to Jesus so that they might live for Jesus and they might persevere to the end. And Father, I pray for fellow believers in Christ, even those who are weary with the work and those who have been heavy laden with the trials. Give them a fresh remembrance that you have established peace, you have raised Jesus from the dead so we can look to him, we can trust him. And you are bringing us through every one of these trials with every resource we have in Christ and you are doing a work in our efforts, in our actions for your glory that brings us into eternity. This world is not our home as it is right now. We are looking for the day when Jesus returns and he makes all things new. And there is much that grieves our soul Amidst the many joys of life, every joy is blunted because it's not complete. It's not full. It's not lasting. Nor was it meant to be outside of Christ. So I pray for those who are struggling that you would remind them the day is coming when we will enter into that new fellowship in the most complete way. In fact, Lord, we are grateful that in your providence today we, we take of the Lord's table which is a reminder to us that we who are associated with Jesus we're waiting for him to come. And we're trusting him. We're trusting in his work. We're relying on it. We're encouraging others to look to Christ, to live for Christ so that we might make it across the line together. You've promised. You've promised. And so we trust. We pray as we take the Lord's table today that we would do so in a way that renews our commitment to live by faith in Christ. Not to live for what we can see here in this world in this time as most pleasurable, but what we can do now that anticipates perfection and completion. Lord, do a good work among us now, a work that brings you much glory in our midst and from this place, touching many, many people. And we pray for this, trusting in Christ. Amen. We are going to take